Hello, and welcome to Bringing Education Home. I'm Herb. And I'm Christina. Together, we are sharing ideas that we believe help families grow stronger, healthier, and that are both inside and outside the box. If you like the show, be sure to follow Christina on Facebook. <laughs> and please give us a review and a like on your favorite podcast platform. Today, I have the pleasure of introducing Nicole Stanford. Nicole is a PhD, is an assistant professor of English at the University of Louisiana Lafayette, specializing in pedagogy. Pedagog pedagogy. I said that right, right? Pedagogy. Pedagogy. <laughs> Language prejudice and power theory. She is the director of the University of Louisiana Writing Lab and has been training teachers since 2007. Her book, Good God But You Smart, Language Prejudice and Upwardly Mobile Cajuns explains the role English classes play in politically controlling national outcomes. Her upcoming book, Teaching Kids Healthy Descent, focuses on creating new practices in homes and schools to teach critical thinking, problem solving, and healthy descent. And this is crucial now more than ever as our nation's institutions are crumbling. And this generation of children will be responsible for rebuilding them when they are adults. This is a beautiful conversation just in your bio. There's so much there to go on, and it's so heartfelt for what we are. So welcome, Nicole. Thank you so much for being here. It is a pleasure to have you. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. It's really good to see you all. It's really good to talk with you. Yeah. And then, at, you know, we got to have a little bit of a pre-conference. And as we were learning more about Nicole and what her second book is talking about, how we help our killed children in our homes and our schools, it was really great um, synergy between vibrant family education and what Nicole is talking about. So today we're really looking forward to looking at that conversation. How do we grow these successful children, right? These successful kids who have a great way of problem solving and figuring things out. And like you said, maybe kind of standing up for things that aren't quite going the right way and fixing it in the future. Yeah, yes. Oh, I was definitely enjoyed that conversation and I'm waiting to see what we're gonna talk about today. So first off, um, during our conversation, you pulled your children out of homeschool and started homeschooling. At a regular school. At a regular school and started homeschooling them. Um, so that is that is what we are trying to help parents do. Um, why did you do that? And how important is that that you think more parents start doing that now? Uh, yeah, I, so uh, one daughter had enrolled in school at that point, and she said, she said, um, school's okay, but I just don't like that we have to sit in the desks all day. And I was like, I was like, that's just the tip of the iceberg. There's also backpack injury, school shootings, um, you know, the um, the way classrooms are taught above their level, the students level or below um, <clears throat> the way children are segregated according to age instead of being able to learn from the ones who are older and also develop their own teaching skills by pulling in the ones who are younger and tutoring them. Um, the, you know, like so, so many things are. I had issues with so many parts of the education that when she just said, I don't like sitting in the desk all day, I was like, all right, <laughs> well, we're done with that. <laughs> we're done with that experiment. And, um, and I say that because already I had gone in having gotten a PhD and studied the education system and how mostly it exists to reify, you know, to, to, to strengthen the status quo 
not to teach critical thinking, not to teach uh, healthy citizen practices where we're really considering, you know, how we want to be ruled, but it's more about sorting people into the correct jobs and classes and stuff like, and, and by class, I mean, socioeconomic class, you know? Um, yeah. So then, then, then I had, I had two more kids behind her and we just kept going with the homeschooling and I chose an unschooling structure because I wanted at, where my studies had taken me was, had shown me. So I, I studied pedagogy. So I'm always looking at what are the best teaching practices? What are the best learning practices? How are brains firing most optimally to learn? And one, I will say one of the most, like one of the, the principles with the biggest impact is figure out where your kids are asking questions because that indicates where their neurons are developing. And that tells you where they can learn most readily. And if you suppress those questions and say, don't ask that now, right now you need to focus on asking these questions and learning for, you know, the material for this test, they can do it, but it's really not optimal. So one of the core principles for um, unschooling that I chose and the co-op that I um, created with a few families in my community was that we were going to be curiosity based. So we really watch our kids closely to see what are they curious about and we pursue activities related to that, like ways to help them specialize and, and develop and, and, and learn everything they can answer all their questions. Um, <clears throat> so, yeah, we did unschooling and. Uh, there, there are a couple other core principles there, but let me stop and see if I'm answering the question, if I'm on track. Oh, you are completely so on track. So So much (laughs) of what you talked about that you learned and you implemented, we have over the years of her being a teacher and me just being out in the world and the out of the box thinker. um, We've come across so much of what you're doing. And this is what we teach our parents Mm -hmm. naturally we've just come through it naturally as this is how things should be and Mm -hmm. so that that you put so much study and emphasis of your life into this that that shows that we're doing it right and also we don't call what we do homeschooling because homeschooling is also broken and Mm -hmm. but unschooling was more of a verb to us so it's like well we need to unschool the kids before we teach them education at home, which is what we call ours. We call it bringing education home or education at home because it has very little to do with school and so much more to do with figuring out how your children learn, teaching them to learn, teaching them to be good people and citizens and and then using their what they're interested in to build the foundation of their education. So if they're interested in music, it's like, you can teach them math in music. You can teach them English in music. You can teach them music in music. So you could build your whole education system just around your child's interest in music or even in sports. So there's so much math in sports, yeah. even if they're like interested in sports, but in clothes, you could like uniform designs and the reason they fit and change. So whatever your children are interested in is like, you can get so much more of an education once they get interested and excited about it and then they love learning and so that that's kind of the basis of ours and it's and we that's why we call it bringing education home instead of homeschooling i love that and i think the words matter the words that you choose to use excuse me one of the big things we did through you know pursuing almost probably a very similar structure to what you're talking about was um, my daughter emma 
was very into collecting rocks from an early age. And then she moved into pretty rocks. So she liked crystals. So I I kept the question we always ask in the co-op is um, because we know that kids interests have been shown in studies to not change over time. Instead of saying, well, good, enjoy that. You know, now let's let's learn about some other things. Instead, just go, okay, go deeper. How can you professionalize with that? How could you make a career out of something that you love? So she started, um, you know, she was really into pretty rocks and crystals and, you know, things like that. So I said, okay. So we got involved in a rock hound society locally, a rock collector society. They loved her interests. So they donated so many cool geodes and stuff to us. And we, um, every time we planned a vacation, we would go somewhere where there was a crystal mine nearby. So we went to Arkansas and we mined our own quartz crystals and learned about, you know, the process of take extracting them from the earth and how it can, um, hurt the ecosystem whenever you're mining in that kind of way. And then she um, she stayed with it and started going in the direction of pretty things, frou-frou. So I said, okay. I bought her a basic kit for um, making earrings and jewelry, bracelets and stuff out of crystals. And and she did it and we earned enough money. We, and we sold it to friends and on, on Facebook. And she earned enough money for us to buy more products. So we reinvested and then soon we were selling at markets and then she was learning. Um, so she memorized all the different kinds of rocks okay. and there, um, there, was it a tetrahedron structure? Was it an octagonal, you know, what was the growth pattern of these different crystals and the formation? Where were they found? What were the ethical practices involved in extracting these crystals? Um, and, you know, choosing the metals we would wrap them in to make earrings. And then she was in charge of um, doing the math. So we made the price of every piece of jewelry $11 or some multiple of 11 so that she could do the math in her head. Very and, she, and she, so she was doing, and, and, the, and I should mention, she was probably eight, she was about eight years old when we were doing this. And um, she was in charge of the customer service. She would stand at the booth and she would say, welcome to our table. I can answer questions about this. And if you have any other questions, you can ask my mom. <laughs> so she, she was eight years old, being able to do all of that, have those experiences. And, you know, just thinking about how an eight-year-old with those kinds of experiences is being set up for their future life, right? You know, she might not be in jewelry and crystals later in life, but the business experience and the research experience and everything that she has had. Think about if we have more children set up like this to help our world as they grow older, right? I mean, oh, and wow. How, how many eight-year-olds are comfortable enough standing at the front of a booth, talking to strangers coming up to them and being a salesperson? I mean, that that alone is incredible because right now our children are, are so be quiet, stay out of the sight, just you know, they hide because, oh, I'm where scared. we were, Shut children up. are meant to be hurt or seen and not heard kind of stuff. And and instead, it's like this, this new bringing the children out to the front just gives them so much more security and, and confidence. Yeah. And that wasn't something that came naturally to her. That was something that she had. I said, if we are going to sell this, this is your project, not mine. So you're going to have to be the one standing out there. So she she committed to it. She worked up the courage and she did it. And uh, it, it and it got to a point where we weren't, she wasn't interested in it anymore. And I, I knew 
because of neuroplasticity, a lot of these categories are going to be replaced. Her brain's going to discard a lot of this information. She's going to learn others. But the core system of being able to create a business, figure out how to, you know, I, I really love Howard Gardner's definitions of education. He's got the multiple intelligences. And I don't know if you've ever heard, he always, he also has this like three prong approach that he looked at for measuring whether people are smart or not. And it's like, can you educate yourself? Can you find the resources you need? Can you problem solve? And are, can you be contextually aware and contribute to your society based on the needs that you notice around you and, you know, <clears throat> the habits and the customs around you? Can you adapt? So I uh, measuring in that way as an educator, I'm always looking at my classes that way. So looking at her, I was like, even if she forgets the name of every one of these rocks or, you know, those things. I feel great knowing that <clears throat> when she gets to a point later in life and she realizes she needs to make a little more business for herself. Yeah, exactly. That is, yeah, all of that is just exactly what we want. We want these children that are able to learn. And now that and you lit up, I saw you. And hopefully when we get the video up, people will see this as well. But Nicole's eyes lit up when Herb said love of learning is like, yes, that's that's one of those big, big things. Because if the children have that love of learning, they're going to keep going because they just want to keep learning more. Yeah. So the kids that fit into yeah. our current education system that love learning, that love being at school and love doing all of that, they usually end up becoming teachers because that really is the path that the schools are designed. The schools are pretty much designed. If you like that environment, that's kind of where you end up. So it's like the best students in school end up becoming teachers because that environment fits them. But so many people of the other children aren't necessarily interested in that. And again, it, it is this kind of sorting thing, but it used to be a sorting thing because they had the different kinds of classes. They had like the woodshop classes. They had the mechanic classes. They had the, and all of that's gone away. And so, so many kids are now forced into a box without any other sort of outlet in school. And that takes the, um, well, so from an empath point of view, so many people push together who don't like where they are, don't like what they're doing. That creates conflicts within them that then spill out into the other kids. So as a kid, it's like I, I was highly sensitive. I would what people call an empath. So in school, so many people didn't like being there. And I felt that. And so I always felt that people didn't like me. So, but it was, they weren't liking themselves. They hated where they were. And so I internalized all of those feelings as they didn't like me, they hated me. And that, that created lots of different um, trauma, traumatic events for me throughout my education system because of that. So, and again, in this, in the, and now what, what you're talking about and what we're trying to create is you get kids together who are actively working in cooperation towards towards a goal, towards their love, towards their learning. And, and again, that, that creates more confident children with way less trauma than and more joy and all of that. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I like ending on the joy note, but I'm going to go a little into that dark side again, you know, the kind of uh, an extended trauma of being in classrooms Bessel van der Kolk writes a little about this in The Body Keeps the Score, which is an amazing book. He's he's one of the people who um, fought to get PTSD as a diagnosis. Um, <clears throat> he says the conditions of the classroom sort of 
um, forced children to go into a, a collapse or a freeze state. You know, you got fight, flight, freeze, fawn. And the um, and, and you end up learning to dissociate from yourself. And I think that it really, over time, it's had its ups and downs. Classrooms, how, you know, how well classrooms serve the people who are in them. But I would say that most people our age, you'll find that they have massive dissociation from their bodies. And I think it's because we were trained as children to sit ourselves in the desk and be proper, you know, and obey. But I don't know about you, my mind was always outside the window or in a book I was sneaking, you know, or in my in daydreams. And so we were trained eight hours a day or more, you know, to dissociate from our yeah. physical surroundings. Yeah, I went to a really little small school out in the middle of nowhere, and I'm I'm very smart. Um, and I would use, just sit in the back of the classroom and pick up a book. And I would just be reading my books through the class. And every once in a while, the teachers would try and pick on me and say, OK, well, Herb's not paying attention and give the question. And I would like pop my head up, give the answer, give more than the answer, give context and everything, and then just go back to reading the book. And the teachers always left me alone. In some of my English classes in high school, it's like the as the teachers were getting their reading lists up, they would actually go, Herb, have you read this book? Herb, have you read this book? Herb, have you read this book? And when they found books I haven't read, that was what they would use for their teaching materials because most of the stuff they had already taught. Now, when he says small school, we're talking a graduating class of 11. So this truly was a small school, right? So, so yeah. But still, it was just, you know, one of those things where he had to deal with constantly where the teachers were trying to, and he was already ahead of, and, you know, the back and forth. So, yeah, school wasn't necessarily great for me. It really was kind of a waste of time. Yeah. Because, again, I would just sit in the back and read and listen and just absorb it all in such a weird way that my brain works that yeah. it also made me kind of scary to everybody, which is, again, brings me back to some of the trauma that I that I kind of suffered because of, of the way the way my brain worked. And it, it was so we we're trying to help other kids other not kids have not to have go that, through right? that. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And if nothing else, I just thought, I just, why would I put my kids in that system where they're just going to be bored all day? What a waste of their childhoods, you know? And, and so that was like kind of the, you know, I was like balancing it out, and I was like, well, what if I don't achieve my goals? And I was like, well, compared to school, I'm not doing that bad, <laughs> you know, like the, the kind of, and I'm sure. Christina, you really know what I'm talking about because you were involved in the assessment and you can see how many people are not reached in the classroom, how many people need extra help. And um, so I was like, if nothing else, and and I'm telling you like the little, um, you know, rationales I came up with my with for myself as I was going in, but I want to say it has not played out this way as I've been schooling from home or, you know, learning my kids have been learning from home. It's been amazing. It's been wonderful. I love it. And um, I'm, I'm very pleased with it, but going in, I was like, at least I know I won't do more harm than a school would. Yes. Yeah. And I guess that's one of the things that we're really trying to get the message out to parents is that, you know, if the child is not happy in school, if the child is not really flourishing and thriving, right? I mean, every day can't be a glorious rainbow day, right? But <laughs> we can have mostly good days in school. And if your child isn't there, then at least take a look at it and see what else you can do to either help build around it or take them out and do something different for that child. Because 
you know, we don't want, we don't want our kids growing up trauma filled or dysregulated or all those words that people use now. And it's like, well, where is that coming from? It's coming because their needs are not being fulfilled. They're not learning. They're not growing. They aren't happy. As, can you hear the can you hear the trauma from a 27 year teacher who when she started 27 years ago she got to create her lesson yeah, plan yeah. she got to figure out where the kids were and individualize the education mm -hmm. and at the end of the year as the kids were leaving her school she would be crying because it's like oh my kids are leaving and I'm and I'm not going to get to work with them the next year yeah and then after 27 years she would be crying at the start of the school year it's like I don't get to reach my kids they they don't let me work with them I have to be on this page I don't get to be a teacher they're trying to make me teach stuff that's not true yeah. and so she went from and and one of the things you talked about is kids not changing she used to teach her little brother when she, even yeah. before school, she would tutor her little brother and she wanted to be a school teacher since she was a way little kid, eight years old, eight years Thank old. You. So she's always been a teacher. So the breaking of the school system for her, she took it incredibly personally and to heart because she was in it and it's not the teachers. Well, some, some of them are the some, teachers, but, yeah. but the way the school system has let, yeah. has, has let her down and and taken away her joys from teaching children is another one of these reasons that we are, are starting this. And one other thing is there's a lot of parents who think I don't have a PhD. I I did terrible in school. Degree, I or... barely graduated from high school. I had a horrible time in school, okay? Those are the parents who know that the school system is broken. They know, and your children are so much like you. So if if you had that much trouble in school, you hated school that much, why are you putting your children through that? Because they're going to have pretty much the same kind of responses that you do because that's that's who they see. That's who they grow up with. Those are the responses that they learn. So if you had a hard time in school, mm -hmm. it's like, seriously, you know that it doesn't work. Get your kids out. I know. I know. I think about this a lot. And like all the things I struggled with in school, the things that make me feel, you know, I still look at, you know, where my weak spots are when it comes to teaching my kids. And I think about the things I struggled to learn and I'm doing, I never fully mastered them and I'm doing fine without thinking about trapezoids or Pythagorean theorem. I'm doing fine. Yeah. <laughs> I yeah. never need it. What I need, uh, most of what I need, I didn't learn in school. I had to learn, you know, through higher education <clears throat> or through my personal studies. So that's been another, um, another, that's another thing I often tell parents when they're considering homeschooling or choosing some alternative. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm like, the things that you feel equipped, ill-equipped to teach your kids, did you ever need them? Oh, okay. Well, are your kids going to need them? Oh, maybe not. Yeah. And if you, if they do need them or you really want that taught, can you get a tutor or can you get a coach or can you do some kind of outreach to fill in that gap? I mean, there, there's choices. And especially now that we're in such a digital world, I mean, there are so many classes online. There are so many teachers that you can work with even at a distance now, right? And fill in those gaps and holes that you feel that you filled. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, we use a Celis, an online academy called a Celis, and we supplement with some out school classes sometimes, just, you know, when we want to study something else. 
Yeah. So exactly. just kind of, so a lot of parents also think that when you're educating your children at home, it needs to be eight, nine hours a day or seven hours a day, like it is in school. How much time do you think on average, do you spend with your children in the learning process of, of the formalness of the education? Not, not because everything, once you do this becomes a, a learning process, but in the, in the formal kind of education. Yeah, seats in chairs or seats in a special room kind of thing. How much day do you spend with stuff? <laughs> it just changed recently actually um i i went in having read a lot of studies about the dangers of academic how would you say it i know how to write it but not how to say it i'm i'm, a, I'm an english major so i know how to spell everything but not pronounce everything oh. academicize it, it's introduce academics too early you right. know have your kids learn through a curiosity based way versus academic version um, so if you do, if you introduce academics too early, um, or I'll say it this way, if you introduce it early, the outcome is the same as if you introduce it late, but the kids have higher anxiety if it was introduced early. So they have bad emotional patterns and dysregulation around the material. Uh, so I delayed that for a very long time. And it's only this year that I've actually begun an online program. Until then, the only formal education we had, and this may be shocking to some people, but I'll, I'll say it, was two hours a week where I have a, a room here in my house with a chalk wall and chairs. And the, the way our co-op works is they spend a different day with each mom in the group. So on... Um, you know, Mondays, they do one thing, Tuesdays, they do another thing. Um, and they were with me on Thursdays, and I would teach English and humanities, history, philosophy, stuff like that. We were just kind of making our way through uh, world literature. Anyway, so that was only two hours a week. Mm -hmm. And recently, we, and every other class was hands-on. They were doing science experiments with one of the moms. <clears throat> Excuse me. So it wasn't a Maybe, you know, you could say it was formal learning, but I would say maximum two hours a day. Playtime. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. Now we've switched to, we do a little more of the online program. That's about five to six hours per week. But what I've found, and, and I'm a numbers person, so I did the numbers. And if you've read Outliers, you know, it takes about, was it Outliers or one of the other Malcolm Gladwell books? It takes about 10,000 hours to become an expert in anything. So doing the math, what I saw was if kids gave three, I think it was three hours per day, committed three hours per day to something they were interested in, they could, and this excludes weekends and holidays, then kids can become, and that's only three hours per day. You know, a lot of times kids dive in for way more, you know, per day than that. They could become an expert two times over by the time they get to college, by the time they, you know, turn 18 and they take a diploma or the equivalent, get the equivalent of a diploma and decide if they want to go to college or not. But they can become an expert two times over at only three hours per weekday. Yeah. So that that was my goal. That was my goal. Have the kids give three hours per day to something they love. Doesn't have to be formal academics. Yeah, that's yeah, that is amazing because a lot of people are like trying to recreate a school classroom in a room in their house or they're trying to 
have the kids do more sit down and things like that. And that's one of the things I keep telling them as we, as we develop and talk with families, it's like, no, you, you sneak it in. You, you learn as you're doing regular life. Um, matter of fact, I was on a podcast yesterday and we were talking about summer slide. You know, a lot of parents are worried about summer slide, how their kids go backwards in academics. And if you're educating at home, they don't really do that because guess what? You're constantly learning. Like I said, you kind of sneak it in, right? You go to the kitchen and you start baking and cooking with them, right? Yeah. Tons of math. Mm -hmm. Well, the part is you double the recipe. Now they're having to double all of those things and they're thinking about how that all goes together. And Mm so you have fun with your children and they learn through that process. Exactly. My sons learn their fractions with their Lego pieces. Yeah. Half and quarters. Yep. And if you think your kids can't focus on something for a long period of time, it's because they're not interested. Uh-huh. You put them in front of a video game, they can sit glued to that, learning the moves, learning what it takes to play the game, learning the maps. I, I played this game called EverQuest for, mm-hmm. for years. Yeah. And there was like, I had books of stacks of binders. maps and binders. <laughs> and after a while, it's like, I knew all of the stuff and I could, I, I could just run through the maps without actually having to pull up my maps. And so, mm-hmm. you know, that that was hours and hours a day. So if you can find something that your kids are interested in, but is also push pulling them to learn more, yep. it's like, and they're mm-hmm. playing video games Pops, because you're Legos. not, because you're not actually stimulating them in yeah. other ways. So you find out what they're curious about. You find out what they like, man, if they like music, Wow, three, four hours a day wouldn't be enough. I know people who like when they get into their guitars, they go into this into this internal zone of flow and they can play all day long. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, what you were saying about video games, there's actually a field of pedagogy called game based pedagogy that looks at why do kids say they don't like school because they have to sit in an uncomfortable chair and do challenging things that are boring all day? But they'll sit in an uncomfortable chair and do challenging, boring things in a video game all day, you know, that that are often uncomfortable or boring, you know, but they'll do repetitive things in a video game. And it has a lot to do with the reward system that was built into it. So there's some really cool studies coming out about that. Yeah. that you would be interested in. But there was something else I wanted to say about that because you were you were headed in a direction that I was like, yes, yes, that. Um, well, maybe it'll come back to me later. Was it about the cooking and the... Was yeah. it about the gameplay and finding what, what they're interested in? Oh, yeah, gameplay. So within game-based or, um, yeah, game-based pedagogy, there are several books written about play and the value of play, the pedagogical use of play. And companies that hire students with, Um, you know, 4.0 and lots of accomplishments and stuff, they found, especially engineering corporations, they find that the engineers don't know how to do anything, even though they're book smart, they don't know how to do anything. And so they had to make an adjustment to find kids who did curiosity-based learning, who tinkered at home, who played and who, who went down the rabbit hole when they were curious about something, because those are the kids who are innovative, creative, very good at problem solving. They're self-motivated. They know how to find resources to educate themselves when they need to. And that's back to that Howard Gardner definition of intelligence that I really appreciate. Like not, can you memorize things well or not? Are you logically sound, but what does it look like? Can you, can you demonstrate your intelligence? 
Yeah. And colleges right now are are recruiting more from homeschooled kids or kids who are educated mm-hmm. at home because they do have the ability to to pivot and move. They can't. Jordan Peterson talks about how in his psychology classes, how he gets college students in these high, high programs who don't know how to write a sentence and don't know how to do critical thinking. And as a college professor teaching like high level psychology, he's having to teach kids how to think and how to write sentences. And he's like, what what's going on here? So, yeah. So doing that from home, finding what they're in, 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 interested in. Yeah. That also promotes reading because, hey, you know what? Here's a book on this and you can learn more from reading and then maybe get some ideas. So then that pulls the kids into books and reading and learning on their own and pulling information that they want to learn without having to get it from somebody else. They Well, they can get it on their own. But but so, yeah, it's just so the colleges are heavily recruiting from people who are educated at home right now just because they're competent, more competent. And they understand kind of what they're doing and what they're going for. Yeah, I think that's a really important point. I also think um, you. I, I feel like we're aligned on like all the points we're talking about, and I'm starting to think that you you're the um, the text and I'm the inline citations. You make a point, and I'm like, you're right, you're right. Let me tell you about all the literature behind what you're saying. <laughs> so you say something, and then I'm like, here's the parenthetical citation. Where to find that research? <laughs> I love that. And, you know, that's part, that's actually part of the reason why we had this meeting, why we decided to bring you on to bringing education home is because it's like, you know, we, we have our life experiences and we have our parenting experiences. And then we found this wonderful lady who actually has done a lot of research and has the doctorate and everything that, you know, kind of helps us understand more and helps our parents and families who are listening understand that, yeah, we're not, you know, and not just this crazy one-time thing from this person's experience is happening all over and there's research behind it. And we might not, you know, quote the research a lot, but it's out there. It's there. And, you know, we have researched some and we have learned and we know, and now we have this wonderful lady, Nicole, who's helping fill in some of those gaps. And, you know, it is just so amazing that you know, we, and actually that was the dichotomy I was just trying to think about. It's like, you're a university professor, right? And I was an (laughs) elementary school teacher and we're saying, get your kids out of the institutions (laughs) or only go to the institutions if it's really what they need, right? Because, you know, as education from home, we're telling parents, it's like, don't set your kid up to go to college unless that's really what they need or want, right? So help explain that a little bit. How how did we go so far off the rails? No, just kidding. <laughs> that, that'd be a long See colleges. You want to hear where colleges went wrong? <laughs> uh, or why why were you know were these people who were in these situations and now we're like branching away from them or helping mm-hmm. people, you know, let's do it different. Yeah. So I, I'm like an out of the box thinker. If you want to go into that, I can take you down some yeah, rabbit holes, go down but we're not going to go hole. there. So actually I want to bring this back to your bio a little bit about your upcoming books teaching. By the way, I can go down the rabbit hole too, but go ahead. Yeah. yeah. That that might be a whole nother podcast. We'll do that one on another one. <laughs> Talk about who controls the universities and what, what function they actually serve in society, but yeah, go ahead. Okay, so Teaching Kids Healthy Descent is your upcoming book, focuses on creating new practices in home and schools to teach to teach how kids how to descent. 
Um, I, I'm in a coaching, I'm a, a coaching group called being true to you. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that, that coaches do is we kind of get under problems and we try and give people tools to solve or to, to work around their issues. And one of the issues that kind of comes up because we're also, we're doing a lot of psycho-spiritual work is people talk about how as a child, they weren't seen, they weren't heard, they were always told to be quiet. And so there's a lot of people dealing with, um, feeling like they're not heard later in life because of stuff that happened as, as a child. So how does, how does that relate to being able to healthy descent in kids? How do we, cause, cause I can see it. I just can't quite put the, the pieces together there yet. How it shows up later in life. Let's see. I think if we fundamentally change, and I think I mentioned this to you in our when we chatted before that when in my research I found that there were two <clears throat> the two strongest normalizing institutions in any nation are the schools and the homes. And I was looking for, you know, I teach critical thinking and I look at student resistance and <clears throat> excuse me, the resistance of different languages and how languages change over time. And then I thought, well, when I had kids, I was like, all right, well, I definitely want to teach my kids healthy ways to express their disagreement with me so that they don't end up in some of these warped situations that I'm dealing with when I get resistant students. So I looked at all the parenting literature out there and it was like books on the right were kind of more like how to get your kids to obey. And books on the left were how to be permissive or how to manipulate your kids with cognitive behavioral uh, tricks. But none of them were like, here's how to handle conflict you know, here, here's how to welcome conflict and teach your kids um, a healthy way to respond in the moment. And if you think about it, having your own, having disagreements or having your own opinion is as healthy a stage of development as learning to walk. And if our kids were trying to walk and they messed up, you know, learning to walk, they fell down, they broke something, we wouldn't be like, I'm going to buy a book and figure out how to make you never try to walk again. Instead, we would just give them like a safe environment to learn to walk in. But a lot of times when our kids disagree with us, we're like, I'm going to buy a book and teach you to never disagree with me again. So what I was started looking at was how would we create a safe space for our children to learn how to disagree in a healthy way with age appropriate decisions, you know, and where the stakes aren't too high, the stakes are low. So it's okay to learn from their mistakes. And um, I started using the pedagogical model that I use in my classrooms and and like applying that to parenting. And like I said, I couldn't find anything in the current parenting literature that it teaches um, a healthy way to teach dissent. And I believe how that would play out in adulthood is what we see, you know, in the news and media now, like we only know unhealthy dissent, which is like, I'm going to have a protest that leads unfortunately nowhere. I wish they did go some, some, some probably do, or um, we're factioning. We have our separate news channels. We're sticking our, our, our thumbs at each other. You know, we're, we're calling each other names. And once we name someone something, we don't have to engage with their thoughts anymore. Um, Or we go to war, we invent a new political party. So we have all these ways of, of never actually solving a problem. Um, or, or one, one party wins and then the next party wins and, you know, and it's just back and forth. That's how I think it plays out in adulthood or we have all these avoid and I've I've gone deep into understanding all the different ways people keep from ever problem solving. 
And we have so many strategies, you know, spiritual bypass. Oh, I already forgive this person. So there's no reason to talk about the conflict or, um, um, I'm sure they were coming from a good place, so we don't have to talk about it, um, or defense mechanisms or, you know, I'm just going to numb myself. So, you know, here I'm going to go meditate. That's again, spirituality, or I'm going to play a video game, or I'm going to take this substance. So I don't have to feel my pain about this conflict. And I believe that it's one of the reasons politically we're at the position we're at now. It's because from childhood on, we don't have a healthy way to express dissent. And if you think about, you know, the most important moments in our country, um, most defining moments, a lot of them have been moments of dissent and, and, and expressing dissent in a really healthy way and, and um, communicating it, finding a way to reach the audience. And then we work out a solution that works for most people, at least, or we find a way to take turns, if nothing else. So that that was that was beautiful that that yes. was that was very very wonderful um and also at the same time kids do need structure they do need boundaries they yes. do need to be kept alive because kids are stupid little creatures <laughs> and they will <laughs> jump into danger yeah. and do crazy stuff so so there is times where it's like there shouldn't be dissent and and you do need to keep your children safe so is where is where is that age? Yeah, I gotcha. I gotcha. Yeah. Found the balance in that yeah. because it's like what I found on the left were the the parenting books that were permissive that were like, well, their blood sugar is low, that's why they were bad, you know, and never actually. And so they were just giving their kids permission and and not providing boundaries <clears throat> or um, manipulating them, just being like, I'm sorry, I'm gonna really clear my throat this time. <clears throat> we have a lot of pollen going on right now. Um. Or, you know, I'm going to, I read an article that was like, instead of saying you do have to eat your vegetables tonight, instead you, you target another kid in the family and say, I love how you're eating your broccoli. Right. <laughs> so I'm not, I'm not a fan of those kind of things. Um, here's the guidelines for me are like, I think about, you know, once again, to put it in the metaphor of kids learning to walk. Would I let my kid practice climbing at a funeral? No, you know, or, or like try out their legs or, you know, practice something while we're in the middle of a, an important ceremony or we're at a friend's house where there are a lot of things that could be broken. No, no, I wouldn't. I would just say, this is not a time. And that's how I deal with it with, with my children. I'll say, um, this isn't a good, this isn't a time that I can negotiate with you. Right. So sometimes sometimes we're in an appropriate space and I'll allow it. And other times I'll say, this is not it. And, the, <clears throat> and in that sense, you know, some people come down on schooling, the skills and drills uh, type of schooling versus the more like complex discussion based. Um, kind. And I say there's a place for both because it, it, in some, when we're crossing a street and my kids are toddlers, they need to understand my emergency voice that when I yell at them, I'm not going to say, sweetie, mommy wants you to stay out of the street right now. You know, I'm going to call their name. I'm going to get out of that street (laughs) because that's a time that they need to know how to respond. They need to obey me. They need to trust me. Mm -hmm. But other times when it's not a a place where it's dangerous, things can be broken. There can be harmful consequences. Then I'll be like, I'll make a kind request, you know, and and there'll be space for negotiation. And I think I've mentioned this before. My kids are used to the phrase from me. If they disagree with me, I'll say, 
<clears throat> well, here's my reason that I don't want to take you to that thing. But if you can make a compelling case that it's going to be worth my time, I'm, I'm listening. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And that's one of the things, um, oh God, I just lost it. Oh, when, when we were raising our boys, it was always, there's our rules in our house. And when we go to somebody else's house out of respect and sometimes out of a way to keep you safe, there's rules in other people's houses and you, that's how we interact. That's how we show respect and kindness and really grow up to know that. So kind of like what you were talking about, some there's certain situations that that's just not acceptable and children need to know that. But again, yeah, you built the base, right? You've communicated this over time and you've worked with them over time. It's not like one day, oh, I'm going to change. I'm going to do it like this. So when this was a, like a contention that we kind of had when in our marriage and with our kids is I, I made a point of telling my kids is like, if I ask you to mm. do something, you have you have the ability to say no, because I'm asking. But if I tell you to do something, then then and, and I made a very big distinction. So there were times where I asked them to do something and, and they said no. And I honored that. And then I just grumbled and did it myself. But <laughs> but there were times because it's like there's times where it's like I want them to do that because I don't want to have to do that. Will you do? No, no, OK, so I have to do it. But there are other times it's like, no, this isn't a, this isn't a time for discussion. This is what you need to do. And yeah. so I made a very big distinction between if I asked them to do something and if I told them to do something. Yeah. And she was kind of of the, oh, I asked them to do it. I expect them to do it. So that was, again, yeah. we figured that out over time. Mm -hmm. But that was one of the things that, that I was very in, in my heart that I held on to. Yeah. But in my, Go ahead. in my household, asking was telling. That's the way I grew up. Mm -hmm. I ask you to do it, but that really meant get up and get going. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can understand that. And I think kids need to kind of grow up being normalized to both methods because they're going to come across teachers or bosses who who ask, but they're, they're not actually asking, you know. And so I, that's one thing I like about being in the co-op. My parents are being exposed. My parents, my kids are being exposed to different parenting styles. And, you know, when they come home and they say this, this different thing happened at you know, this person's house, I'll be like, oh, well, that's how they that's how they handle it. You know, you get to decide what you're going to do with your kids. But I did the same thing, Herb. I, I would say I would ask, a, I would make a request if it really was an option. And if it wasn't an option, I would just say it's time to. That was my distinction. It's time to wash, brush your teeth. It's time to put on your pajamas. Exactly. Oh my gosh. Wow. This has been such a deep conversation and such a wonderful conversation. And we've, we've gone all the way from, you know, the schooling to the education at home and why it's a good mix. And maybe why, maybe even it's time to make a change in your child's life. And this has been amazing. And I love this last part of the conversation that we've just had about that reasonable descent is like, how do we teach our kids to you know, respectfully disagree, basically, you know, how do we help make a point without blowing things up? Oh, calling names and all of that kind of stuff. And, you know, this, this is a wonderful, wonderful conversation. I think we'll have to have Nicole back. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think, and especially just, just, what, especially what, once the book comes out. Yeah, Let's go. Deeper I heard this. That. I heard this new saying and, and something you were talking about the books on the left versus the books on the right. And so a new a new saying that I kind of heard is, if you don't raise your children, you'll be raising your grandchildren or so raise your children 
or raise your grandchildren, right? So, so many people are just letting their kids just, they're not raising them. They're just letting them go. And then, experience, the, yeah. and then, so they're basically spoiling their children. So, so if you spoil your children, you're going to be raising your grandchildren. So that, That's and, and you can kind of see that happening a lot right now. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And to put a parenthetical citation on that studies show that um, if you don't, if you're not ideologically explicit with your kids, you know, if, if you don't really take charge of your beliefs and communicate those to your kids, um, and people are afraid to do that because they're like, well, I don't want to tell my kids what to believe. I don't want to program them. But society will not hesitate to program your kids for you. And so you have to step in and say, in this home, we believe, blah, blah, blah. And your kids are welcome to depart from that at some point. But you say, in this home, this is what we do. I love that because it's kind of like my classroom is like in my classroom. This is how we behave. The expectations of second graders right now are da, 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 da. Yeah, exactly. So Nicole, if somebody wanted to reach out and have a little bit further discussion with you or find out more about your book, what's the best way to get a hold of you just so they have a contact? Um, Well, right now, the best way to reach me is my email address, which is just my name, Nicole Stanford, and it's Nicole with an H, which uh, is a little surprise in there. So N-I-C-H-O-L-E-S-T-A-N-F-O-R-D at gmail.com. And uh, I'll be working on creating some kind of social media presence in some format, but um, I have that and I'm looking at uh, getting some videos up about some of the, the parenting stuff that I'm doing right now. Awesome. And when you do, you know, we can always add those to the show notes later as well. So even though it might not be there right now in the future, when people find this discussion, they'll be able to go ahead and jump in there and look at those as well. So families, friends, vibrant families, we want people to grow and continue to grow and be with their families. Thank you for staying with us for this wonderful conversation, Nicole. It was a blessing to have you with us here today. And as always, Find those nuggets, find those special things that we talked about today that might be able to make that change in your life and your family so that we have happy, healthy, and successful kids. Thanks everybody for being with us today. Thank you, Nicole. It has been an absolute pleasure to have you here and we look forward to having you back in the future. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me and thank you so much for sharing your heart and your experiences with me. You're welcome. All right, everybody. Bye for now.